0: So there came a point in Jesus's, um, in his ministry in which he he stopped with his disciples and he asked them a very very specific question. So uh, in your bulletin, there's an outline of of today's message. Um, In fact, there's two outlines on the same piece of paper. One is the notes I I used from last week and then uh, the notes for today. And so Jesus, uh, he asks them the question, uh, who do people say that I am? By this time, Jesus has become pretty popular. Uh, People have seen many of the miracles that he has performed. They listened to his teachings, and they would respond by saying, we've never heard anybody teach with such truth. And they were just taken back and amazed by the teachings of Jesus. And so he asks his disciples this penetrating question, and they said, well, some are saying that you're John the Baptist, resurrected. Some are saying that you're Elijah the prophet, Others are saying that you're Jeremiah. Others are saying you're one of the other prophets. And so there were a variety of different answers that were given uh, on the streets. So Jesus then looked at his disciples and he said, But who do you say that I am? I remember these guys have been traveling with Jesus probably about two years up to this point when he asks them this question. They have been with Jesus pretty much 24 7, they've seen the miracles, they've heard the teachings who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter, who oftentimes was the spokesperson for the group, says, well, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And so he was proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, as God himself. And so Jesus says, um, man, Peter, the answer that you've given me did not come from you. That had to come from God. And so he acknowledged who Jesus was. Now, if I were to take that same question and walk out on the streets today and ask people, who do you think Jesus was? I would get answers like, well, Jesus was a, a, a great teacher, um, or he was a very moral person. Uh, he certainly lived an, an exonerary life. You know, we ought we to pattern our lives after him. He talked a lot about love and about forgiveness and those kinds of things. And so I would probably get a, a wide variety of different answers because I have. I've asked people that question oftentimes. Well, who do you, who do you think Jesus is? Who, who do you think he, you know, he, he portrayed himself to be? And so um, we get all kinds of answers. But I doubt that anyone's going to say, well, I believe that Jesus was the Christ. He was the son of the living God. And yet that's exactly what Jesus says. Yet Jesus never told us to acknowledge him simply as a good moral person, a great teacher, an example we ought to follow. He did not even leave us that option. In fact, Jesus put it this way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So that's another one of those outrageous statements that Jesus made about himself. You notice he didn't say, I am a way. I am one of many different ways. The article, the definite article was the. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. If you want to find life, you're going to find it in me. You're not going to find it anywhere else. You're going to find it in me and me alone. And so most people push back on that, right, to people which people respond, well, that is probably one of the most narrow-minded, judgmental, bigoted, politically incorrect statements that I have ever heard. How in the world can you say that Jesus is the only way? And Peter, a follower of Jesus, Later on after Jesus has died and resurrected and ascended back into heaven you know, remember he and John they help a guy at the uh, a lame man at the temple and they help they heal him and God brings healing through them and they're taken before the Sanhedrin and say what are you doing and stop talking about this Jesus and stop proclaiming his name and his resurrection and and Peter made that statement that says well who else how can we not stop talking about what we have seen and what we've heard the teachings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. Man, we've experienced all of this. And so Peter made that statement, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we might be saved. One of the reasons Jesus's exclusivity claim is so controversial is because it contradicts the popular viewpoint that all religions are basically the same, and we're all trying to get to the same place. And when it's all said and done, and it's all over, all religions were, you know, we're heading up the same mountain, just traveling different pathways, and we're all eventually going to reach heaven, and we're all eventually going to be in God's presence, and it's all going to work out in the end. But that is never what Jesus said. In fact, Jesus said just the opposite. He said there is a road that is broad, and it leads to destruction. Many are there walking on it, and there is a road that is very narrow that leads to eternal life, and few are, who are finding it. But in our day and time, um, when you talk about Jesus, see, you can talk about God all you want, right? You can talk about God with people. You can talk about spirituality. You can talk about spiritual things. People will talk about it all day long. But you ever notice when you bring the name Jesus into the conversation, all of a sudden, everything changes because Jesus is the dividing line. Jesus made outrageous statements about himself proclaiming to be God in human flesh and that he would be the only pathway by which you and I can come back into relationship with this God who created us because of our our sin that has caused separation. And so, you know, people say, well, you can use different languages and, and, and different rituals all you want, but I just believe that in the end you know, everybody's going to make it. or All religions are going to lead to the same destination. So here's some examples of that. There are religious leaders who tell people, well, follow me and I'll show you how to find truth. But Jesus combats that. He says, I am the truth. There are religious leaders who say, um, you know, follow me and I'll show you the way of salvation. Jesus said, I am eternal life. There is no other way of salvation. There are religious leaders who teach, uh, I am, the, you know, follow me and I'll show you how to become enlightened. And Jesus says, you don't understand, I am the light of the world. The religious leaders who tell people, follow me and I'll show you many doors that lead to God. But Jesus said, I am the door. So if you were to boil it all down, all religions outside of Christianity are spelled do. You ha- there are things you have to do, right? They're, they, they are based on people doing something Um, through their struggling and their striving because you're trying to earn God's favor. You're trying to earn God's acceptance. And so all of life is about doing. It's about participating on a certain pilgrimage, giving alms to the poor, scrupulously maintaining a specific diet, um, performing good deeds, chanting the right words, saying the Tibetan prayer wheel, a series of reincarnations, Follow, you know, faithfully follows some religious drill in the attempts of people reaching out to God. And then Jesus came along, and he just blew all that out of the water. He says, no, 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 it's not about do, it's about, be, it's about done, it's what I have done. Everything that we believe as followers of Jesus Christ, as Christians, as born-again believers, It hinges upon the authenticity of who Jesus says he is. And that can often be brought into question. The gospel says we're all spiritual rebels, that nobody can do anything to earn heaven. You cannot earn God's love. God's love is something that is given out of God's grace. God understands what our greatest needs are, and therefore, he responds to our greatest needs through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's not something that I earn, it's just something that I accept. It doesn't come by trying harder, it comes by relying upon a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And so when Peter says, salvation comes under no other name, there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved except through Jesus Christ, you can share that with people and you may get some pushback on that, or people may be confused. Uh, In our day and time, people go, I don't know, I don't understand If, if Jesus was God, and and if it was God, then, then why did... And so there are really two um, divergently different outcomes when you follow one of these two pathways, right? Religion versus Christianity. Why would God come into the world and say over here in this part of the world, well, you know, the way to be saved, the way to reconcile yourself back with me is do this, this, and this. And over here, he says, do this, this, and this, something different. And over here, he says something different over here and something different over here. The fact of the matter is... All religions cannot be true. They cannot be trustworthy. Somebody's not telling the truth. It'd be like me coming here today and saying, my wife would say, um, Greg's not wearing socks today. And my daughter would say, yes, he is. And so what, what, what am I going to do? If I want to keep peace in the family, then I have, to, you know, I have to be a little tolerant and say, well, you're both right. Well, obviously, you're not both right, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Either I am or I'm not. Well, the same thing is, with the Christian faith is that you can't bring, you know, five, six, ten different ways to God and say these are all from God because something has to be truth and something is not true. So the question is, what is true? Jesus says, I am truth." What is the truth? What is the way? Jesus said, I am the way. So in order to help people understand why this is so necessary and so important in their life, Because it does matter which route you take on your spiritual journey. Jesus is saying that all other routes are ultimately dead ends, but he is the way to God. And so Jesus' claim of exclusivity skews the myth that all religions are basically the same. They are not. Now, all of them may teach some overlapping truths, but they're not all the same. They're not all truthful. So under our constitution, all religious opinion is equally protected as it should be. People are free to believe whatever they want, but some jump to the erroneous conclusion that just because different religious viewpoints are equally protected, that they must be equally valid, and that is simply not true. You can protect somebody's religious rights, but it doesn't mean all religious rights are valid that they are truthful in what they're teaching. And so how do you know that Jesus is telling the truth? How do you know that what Jesus' claim to be the only path to God, that is truthful? Well, we're gonna put Jesus on trial today uh, because if there is evidence to prove that, then wouldn't it be um, to our advantage to reorient our lives around the claims of Christ? But if it, true, if it proves to be not true, then maybe we need to search somewhere else. For example, if I were to come in here uh, this morning and say, I just want you to know uh, Elvis is alive. And the reason I know that is because I'm Elvis. Now, I have proof because I have a picture of me as Elvis, and I sang a song in public uh, of about three or 400 people up on stage, and I have proof. I have a picture, and my wife was there laughing hysterically at me because we went to this, uh, it was like a a dinner theater, and there's five brothers, and and they have a band, and they play every instrument under the sun, all kinds of genres of music, and unbeknownst to us, our table is near the front of the stage, and I got drug up on stage along with two other individuals. They took us backstage and literally dressed us as Elvis, we had to go out and sing an Elvis song, karaoke style. So if I were to claim to be Elvis, you would say, well, you're lying. Well, prove it. What's the evidence that I'm not? Well, first of all, now that you don't have your Elvis gig on, you don't even look like him. You're not the same height. You're not, you're not you know not. I mean? just Just, you don't even look like him. And if you've ever heard me sing, <laughs> you would know that this is not Elvis incarnate, okay? It's just not happening. So the evidence would be against me, but if somebody were to walk in our doors and come up on this stage and say, I'm Elvis, well, there's some evidences that could prove that. Number one is we could take a DNA sample. We could do fingerprints. Um, There are a lot of things that we could do as as evidence to prove or disprove whether or not this person who he's claiming to be is actually Elvis. A few years ago, um, my wife and I and our kids went on a vacation to Virginia Beach and it happened to be the weekend of Elvis impersonators. It was like this big contest. There were like 300 Elvises everywhere. Everywhere you went, there was Elvis. I mean, every, every store you went into, every restaurant, Elvis was there. So um, who was the real Elvis out of all of them? I do not know. They sounded like him. They looked like him. They, they dressed like him but I'm sure that there are some evidences that I could bring up against them and say, ah, I just really don't think you're the real thing. real thing. So what are the evidences of Jesus' claims concerning who he says he is? I think that the evidence is going to demand a, ver- a verdict. So here's the first one is that Jesus claimed to be God. Now, sometimes you hear people say, well, no, Jesus never claimed to be God. At no time did Jesus ever... Boldly say, I am God, and you would be absolutely right. He never used those three words, I am God. You'll never find that in Scripture, where he just comes out and says, technically, he just comes out and just says, boom, these are, these are the exact words together in precise sequential order, I am God. But he made claims of his, his godhood all the time. Now, here's what other religions believe and claim about Jesus who they considered uh, one God among many, or have a distorted view of Jesus. Buddhism teaches that Jesus was not God, but he was simply an enlightened man like Buddha. Hinduism teaches that Jesus was an incarnation of God like Krishna. Islam teaches that Jesus was a man and a prophet, but he was inferior to the prophet Muhammad, who is the Most High Prophet. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was merely the archangel Michael. He was created a created being that became a man. This is very important. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was only a man who became one of many gods. He was a polygamist and the half-brother of Lucifer. New Age guru Deepak Chopra says that Jesus is nothing more than a state of consciousness. Scientology, you know, the religion of Tom Cruise and John Travolta and other stars that we, we, you're probably familiar with, teaches that Jesus was an implanted force from uh, the uh, planet of Titan about a million years ago. And so none of these portrayals of Jesus have any historical fact or foundation. They're simply trying to fit Jesus into their existing belief system, right, right? We cannot deny that Jesus was a historical figure. There's just way too much evidence out there to prove that he existed. You not only have the writings of scripture, you have the writings of Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, and you have the writings of many historians from Rome itself. And so you can't deny that Jesus existed. So they have to figure out, how can we bring Jesus into our belief system? And so you'll notice that um, Jesus is rejected as the central character in redemptive history. Now, here's what the apostle Paul said about that. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee and uh, didn't believe in Jesus. And when Jesus ascended to heaven and the early church began to erupt, I mean, he was the persecutor of the church. He hated the church. He believed they were not a part of God's will. And he was, it was his, his job and responsibility to stamp out the church before it gained much momentum. And that's exactly what he sought to do until he had this, you know, this uh, experience on the road to Damascus where the resurrected Christ confronted him said, so Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting. Well, if you're persecuting them, you're persecuting me. And Saul gets saved. He changed his name to Paul and became a very strong advocate of, of the gospel of Jesus. So here's what he says in Galatians 1.8. If anyone comes to you with another gospel other than what I gave you, or what the disciples are giving you. Any other, any other gospel. Watch this. Even if it's an angel from heaven who's claiming to have another gospel, let them be eternally condemned. And there are many religions that claim to have angelic visitations and obviously the gospel they are portraying is not the gospel that Paul was portraying in Scripture. In fact, Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.1, these were doctrines of demons. Satan knows that it is intrinsic upon humanity to worship, right? So what better way to keep humanity blinded to Jesus and the truth of Christ than to do so through religion? 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that Satan keeps the minds of the unbelieving blinded to the truth of the gospel and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan's chief deception is to lure people away from the only sound source of salvation who is Christ as Jesus declared himself to be. So, Jesus said things that those in his culture interpreted and knew were clear claims of his divinity. So I want you to look at one of them in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, Jesus is having some, um, let's say, very kind of heightened discussions with the religious leaders of his, his day and time. And so, in uh, John chapter eight, in this heated debate with some fellow Jews, they ask, "Well, who do you think you are?" And so, Jesus' his response, culturally as well as religiously, is really scandalous. So it says in John eight in verse um, fifty-six. Well let's just start in fifty four Jesus said, replied, "If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me, though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do not know, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham now they've just brought up you know the the, the icon of Judaism, the father Abraham, out of which the 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 nation of Israel evolves out of his lineage. He says, um, "Rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answers, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. And so then they picked up stones to stone him, and Jesus hid himself slipping away from from the temple grounds. And so, what what is Jesus saying here when he uses the word I am? He's using the covenant name of God. The two most important names to a Jewish person is the name Elohim and Yahweh. But in the original Hebrew, Yahweh has no vowels. So they're just consonants. And even yet today, no one knows how to pronounce God's covenant name. And so even a rabbi cannot pronounce the name, and so they added in vows in order to be able to say a name. Sometimes it's translated as, Adon- they use Adonai or Jehovah, but more likely Adonai in, in the Jewish faith, even in our day and time. And so what Jesus was proclaiming was his prior existence. He was not saying that I came into the world as a man and, and becoming God. He's saying, I was God who existed even before Abraham, which was like 2,000 years ago, you know, prior to this moment, and uh, he's saying, I I existed before Abraham, I, I am, I am God. That's what they would take that statement, that's what riled them up so badly as to why they wanted to stone him, and so Jesus repeatedly speaks of himself as coming and originating from heaven several times all throughout, especially the gospel of John, like John Three thirteen and six thirty eight and six forty one. Jesus saying, "Listen, my existence—I existed long before you, you came into existence, and I existed prior to this." And um, and the second thing is that he's claiming to be Israel's God specifically. Jesus isn't using like bad grammar here. So when Moses was confronted by God at the burning bush, and Moses asked the question as God was asking him to lead his nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, "Who shall I tell?" them is sending me. And God says, I am who I am. And so it was the the covenant name of God. It was God all kind of like all of his names rolled up in one. I am. I am the God. There is no other besides me. And so this is Jesus claiming this for himself. Look in John chapter uh, 10 and verse 29. We get another glimpse of Jesus's teaching and um, his self-proclamation about who he is. He says in verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Now, I know you can't see this in the English, but when Jesus says, I am the Father, are one, the word are is in the plural form, Father and I, right? We're one. But the word one is singular, one thing, one essence. In other words, the Trinity is not one God in three essences, it's one God in one essence. And Jesus is saying that God and I, the Father and I, are the exact same Nature, the exact same essence. Make no mistake about it. I am claiming to be God. And so again, their response is what? They pick up stones. They're, want, they're wanting to stone him again, because he is making this claim that He is God. In John 14:9 he says, "Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus teaches people to pray to him. And so you see this all through the, the New Testament, Stephen, Paul. John, uh, they all, you know, prayed to to the Lord Jesus and Jesus accepted worship and he claimed another number of titles that were used in the Old Testament alone of Yahweh, like I am the shepherd of Israel, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, I am the Almighty, I am the light of the world, I am the bridegroom, I am the giver of life. In Jesus's 52 recorded narrative parables, 20 of those, he depicts an imagery that is typically in the Old Testament a reference to God about himself. And so, both in the Old and New Testaments, both forbid anyone worshiping anyone but God, and yet Jesus accepted the worship of nine different individuals during his three year ministry. My whole point is this if someone claims that Jesus never claimed to be God, that's absolutely false. Jesus was constantly claiming. And proclaiming who he was. That is why he is the way and the truth and the life. That no one comes to the Father by him. It's why there's no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved. Because it is Jesus who is God who came to be, give himself as a ransom for the sins of the world. He is the center of God's redemptive process. Evidence number two, others acknowledged that Jesus was God, right? New Testament writers claimed on several occasions, John, right? Peter, James, and John were, the, you know, the, the inner three with Jesus. You know, you hear about the disciples, but there was always Peter, James, and John. They went with Jesus in different places and had uh, exclusive um, privileges of seeing, like, the Mount of Transfiguration and other things. And so here's what John said. John said in John 1 and 14 in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word is God, and the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, right? He tabernacled among us. And so He was saying that Jesus existed before. His existence didn't come into existence at Bethlehem. He was always before, right? He existed prior. Again, it was God coming into the world and taking on the form of a human body. It was not a human man growing up and becoming and evolving into a god, all right? So Paul is in, says this of Jesus in Romans 9.5, God is, Christ is God over all. In Christ, all fullness and the deity lives in bodily form. Peter declares that believers receive righteousness from our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And so again, they're the followers of Jesus, those who are most intimate with Him also proclaim him to be who he claimed to be. Evidence number three, Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. There are 300 predictions of Jesus' coming in the world, prophetic words. So Jesus has no control over the, most of these things, has no absolutely no control. And so the Bible says that Jesus, you know, it was like a creative kind of fingerprint as he would come into the world and he would fulfill these Old Testament prophecies and so, for example, 29 of the major prophecies concerning his death were all fulfilled in one day, things that he had absolutely no control over. And so the um, likelihood of anyone who could fulfill 300 prophecies that were written 7, 800 years prior to his existence coming into the human form, Peter Stoner, in his book Science Speaks, conservatively calculated the likelihood of one person Throughout history, fulfilling just 48 out of the 100 or 300 predictions, it would be one chance in 10 to the 157th power, in other words, a virtual impossibility. So everything Jesus said must be full, fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, and he fulfilled every one of them. Here's the fourth evidence, Jesus' miracles. You remember what? Peter said to the Sanhedrin, he says, how can we stop talking about what we have seen and what we've heard? And what did they see? They saw miracles, a lot of miracles. In fact, John wrote in his gospel, if you read all four gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry, John says, listen, we didn't even write a fraction of what he did, of the miracles he performed. We'd have to write volumes in order to get it all on paper. And so they were eyewitnesses of all of this. Jesus said once, don't believe me unless I do miracles of God, John 10, 37. And so those miracles documented the reliability of the historical records that portrayed Jesus as he, he demonstrated his power over disease. He demonstrated his power over nature. He d- demonstrated his power over death when he brought Lazarus back to life. You'll notice that Jesus waited four days before he came to Lazarus' tomb. Why? Because the Jewish people believed that the soul of a person remained in the body for three days, and it would be on the fourth day that your soul would separate from the body. So Jesus wanted people to know hey, John or Lazarus, the dude's dead. I mean, he's dead, his soul's gone. Now, roll away the stone. I'm calling him out. So again, uh, we have the historical documentation. Evidence number five, Jesus was God who became a man. So often we get close to people, and yes, you know what you notice when you get close to people? You, you notice their flaws, right? You ever gone on vacation with somebody you didn't know very well? You know them real well after you get back from vacation, don't you, right? You know all your flaws and all your bad habits and, and all the things that irritate you. Well, nobody knew Jesus more than his disciples who traveled with him for three years I mean, closely in, in contact with him. And so, um, and, and again, nobody closer than Peter, James, and John. And John said, in him is no sin. Peter said, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And so, what about this fact about Jesus being sinless? Jesus himself said, which of you convicts me of sin? To which nobody could rise up and say, well, here it is. Right? Nobody could give an account or a testimony even his disciples who spent three years with him day and night claimed that Jesus was sinless. For example, Peter characterized Jesus as the unblemished and, unsp- and, the spot- unspot- the unblemished and spotless lamb, 1 Peter 1.19, who committed no sin nor any deceit was found in his mouth. John said of Christ in him there was no sin, 1 John 3.5. Paul wrote that Jesus knew no sin, 2 Corinthians twenty five twenty one. The writer of Hebrews says, And the same point proclaiming that Jesus was without sin, Hebrews 4.15. And so what's the point of all this? Is that Jesus was who he said he was, right? He is the sinless son of God, God in the human flesh. How many people do you know in human flesh throughout the course of history who could proclaim and make the claim, I am absolutely sinless, and everybody they know, the most closest to them would say, That's right, they are. Nobody. Even Pilate said to those who were crying out for Jesus' crucifixion, I find no fault in him. I don't know what you're doing. But there is nothing, there is no reason why you are bringing him to this point. And so someone says, well, that might be true, but, and there's always a but, because there's always skeptics trying to disprove the claims of Christ, Uh, We find them everywhere, and they'll say, well, okay, John 14, 28, Jesus clearly subordinated himself to God by admitting the Father is greater than I. And Matthew 24, 36, Jesus claims that he doesn't even know the date that he's going to return. Here's what he says, no one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So how can Jesus be God if he is subordinate to the Father and has limited knowledge? Right, how are you going to answer somebody with that? All right, you're telling me that Jesus was God who came in human flesh, that he's co-equal with God, same nature, same essence, but yet he's subordinating himself to the Father, and he doesn't even know the date he's going to return. Limited knowledge. Well, I have an answer for you. And you need to have an answer for people who ask that question, because I've had that question asked many, many times. So I want you to go to Philippians chapter 2, because there is where we find the answer. Uh, Let me just give you a real, real quick tutorial on the Trinity, because that's where you find the answer to the question that is being asked. All right? So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, but we're not going to read all those verses. I'm just going to hit verse 5, 6, and 7. It says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, what did Paul say? Very nature, same nature, same essence, God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of man humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even to death on the cross. Now catch that. Nature of God, but also the nature of humanity, a servant. This is called the hypostatic union, God and man coming together in one body. So Jesus was 100% God, 100% man at the same time. So here's the explanation as to why he was subordinate. Um, the Trinity is three persons in one divine essence, not three essences, but one, right, who share divine nature. So I want you to think of it in terms of a triangle, right? A triangle has three sides, but three equal sides, but it's one triangle. So you have God, Holy Spirit, and the Son. And so there are three gods, three, one essence, God portraying himself in three ways, but here's what Jesus took on. Jesus took on a human body, the nature of a servant. So when you're asking questions about Jesus, is it applying to Jesus as God or is it applying to Jesus as man? Because notice what Paul says he did. He, he considered himself nothing. He's considered equality with God, something not to be grasped, made himself nothing. And so there's where the surrender goes. For example, um, Did Jesus know the time of his second coming? As God, absolutely he did. As man, he did not. Did Jesus know all things? As God, absolutely. As man, no, he did not. Look in Luke chapter 2. It says he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, right? Uh, Did Jesus get hungry? As God, no. As man, absolutely. Did Jesus get tired? As God, no. As man, absolutely. Here's the point, is that Jesus set aside his God card. Now, at times, he would exercise his right as God. For example, when the four, you know, friends who brought their their friend to Jesus and they couldn't get in the house, they cut a hole in the roof and they lower him down on the mat, and and Jesus looks at the guy and says, your sins are forgiven. Of course, that riled up the Jewish leaders like, hey, only God can forgive sin. Who do you you think you are? (laughs) He says, well, is it easier for me to say for, your sins are forgiven or pick up your mat and walk out? And that's exactly what the guy does. So what was Jesus saying? Yes, I am God. I can exercise my authority as God, but I'm here as a human, and I've kind of set that God card aside. I may use it once in a while, but by and large, I am I am man. I am living as human beings. And so how could Jesus heal people, right? He, As God, he could do anything. But as a human being, he relied upon the Father, right? So he prayed like we pray. Every day he prayed. Three times a day sometimes he prayed, what? Asking the Father to bring his resources, his power from heaven to earth in order to you know, set aside the laws of nature in order to bring about healing in somebody's life. And so Jesus taught us how to live as a human being who is indwelt by, empowered by, anointed by the Holy Spirit and walking in the evidence of the Holy Spirit living itself in and through your life. And so the Trinity helps us understand what Jesus declared. The Father is greater than I. The Father and Son are equal in essence, but different in function. You know, it's just like in an early, earthly relationship. Okay, I'm, I'm a father. Uh, I don't have a son. I have a daughter. But, that's, uh, but uh, as, as their father, I have a higher office than they. So here's, just think of it in terms like this. Salvation was the plan of God before the foundation of the world. Jesus came into the world to execute the plan. And now the Holy Spirit continues the plan moving forward. As Jesus said, unless the Spirit of God draws you into a relationship with your Heavenly Father, you would never come on your own because you're too blinded by the evil one. Uh, Your heart is just not capable of of making that decision on its own. It's, It's so hardened and it's so calloused. And unless the Spirit of God brings conviction about our sin, brings truth into our lives, enables us to see the truth for what God has said is truth and who Jesus is, we would never even look his way. And so Jesus, the evidence is there that he is both God and man. And number six, Jesus' resurrection is probably the most profound um, evidence that literally transformed the lives of his followers. You see, after Jesus died and was put in a grave, uh, because in the Jewish mindset, that there was only, you know, according to Old Testament teachings, there was only going to be one resurrection. And at the end of time, God would resurrect all the Jewish people in one big resurrection. And, uh, So when Jesus talked about his resurrection, it just didn't click with the minds of his disciples because that's not the way they were taught. That's not the way they thought. And they didn't think, you know, Messiah was, you know, had always been taught to them. He's going to come and, you know, as a, as a, um, like David personified, he's, he's going to break the yoke of Rome and he was going to be a warrior kind of Messiah and, and all these things. And so, When Jesus talked about his death and his burial and his resurrection, just never really clicked for the disciples. And so what happened after he was crucified and put in a grave? They're scared, right? They're scared to death. They hide themselves. They're they're behind closed doors. But when Jesus made his appearances to them, which he made 12 appearances over a 40-day period of time, sometime up to groups as large as 500, then all of a sudden they believe, they 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 just it like transformed them from these scared little, you know, rabbits in this, in this closet to these, you know, once they in, were indwelt by the Spirit, like they were just like, boom, you know, the transformation because of Jesus' resurrection and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit over them, they literally begin to transform the, the known world in their day and time. Now, there are a lot of people who have tried to object to Jesus' Um, resurrection, which I find highly um, comical, because again, there were many writers, uh, historians, in jesus 's time, even out of the Roman Empire, and Josephus, who was a Jew, uh, who wrote about Jesus' resurrection. Nobody, nobody in that day and time, because when you have the writings of the New Testament, uh, the, especially the gospel, it's like within 25, 30 years of Jesus life. If anyone wanted to refute the resurrection, all they had to say is yeah, hey, you're lying, you're lying, you're lying." But nobody could do that because, and the eyewitnesses were still alive, right? It's only as time goes by that you can start refuting things. Like there are people in our day and time who say, well, you know, the Holocaust never took place. That was a figment of people's imaginations, and how can you prove that? And, you know, all kinds of things. People say, well, that never happened. That never took place. Well, George Washington never lived. How do you know he lived? Well, I, I, we have historical evidence. Well, how can you trust the historic evidence? Are you able to trust the historic evidence? Maybe they're just lying about that. Maybe they just made it up. Um. Yeah. So, people came along and says, "Well, Jesus didn't really die. The swoon theory. He just kind of like passed out, and they put him in the tomb, and he kind of came, you know, uh, came to himself. And even though they had beat him so severely, as the prophet Isaiah said, he would not even have been human, humanly recognizable. With an inch of his life, crucify him. And by by the way, the Romans were were um, experts at crucifixion." and thrust a spear in his side where blood and water comes out. And even Pilate sent and said, hey, make sure the guy's actually dead. And so they did. And Joseph of Arimathea takes the body and, you know, puts like 75 pounds of, of uh, oils and, and spices on the body, puts him in it. But Jesus, you know, just kind of woke up and then somehow rolled that stone away and got beyond the elite Roman soldiers who were out there guarding the tomb. And then he would come into his into the presence of his disciples, a just absolute bloody mess and say, I've resurrected. Really? You look like you're dead or should be or still are. And so I don't know anybody who really considers that um, in this day and time as being, um, yeah, as being authentic. Uh, You know, like, again, Josephus, Tacitus, Talus, uh, even the Jewish Talmud, uh, which is not source-friendly to Christianity, uh, spoke about the resurrection. Second ob- uh, objection as well, somebody stole Jesus' body. Okay, well, let's just put this to rest. If somebody stole Jesus' body and now they're out there like saying Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive, Jesus, is... you could have stopped Christianity dead in his Just bring the body and lay it in the street and say, here he is. But nobody could do that right, because nobody had the body. So they claim, well, the disciples stole it, or let me ask you a question. Do you think that the disciples would be willing to give their life for a known lie? People will give their lives for what they think is truthful, but it's actually a lie because they don't know any better. But somebody, a known lie, you're not going to lay down your life for that. And yet every one of the disciples except John was martyred and, and martyred, you know, by beheadings and, and um, cr- upside-down crucifixions. All they had to do is say, Jesus, it's a hoax, recant their faith in Christ, and they would have been set free. Nobody's going to lay down their life for a known lie, a hoax, like, oh, we made it all up. Um, then there's another objection. Well, they went to the wrong tomb. Um, really? I... I Uh, You don't think Joseph of Arimathea knew where his own tomb was located? Uh, And then there's one It's a big one as well. The disciples just borrowed the idea of resurrection from some other um, old writings and myths and things that were going around. You know that the documentation for the existence of Alexander the Great, who only lived to be 33 years old, but by that time had conquered the known world, most of it, not all of it, but most of it, that the documentation that we have on him is very, very sparse. We have no sources from his lifetime or soon after his death. We only have fragments of two works um, that were written 100 years after his death. And so we base virtually everything we know about the life of Alexander the Great from a historian who wrote three to 500 years after his death and yet nobody questions that. But we have, and we'll get into this later, New Testament documentation. We have over 5,000 manuscripts and, uh, that are dated within 100 years. And, of course, you have the writings of the New Testament date within 25 to 50 years of Jesus' life. And yet everybody wants to question that. So I think that the evidence here demands a verdict. So the verdict is simply this. Either Jesus lied about who he said he was or he was just a lunatic. I mean, there were a lot of would-be messiahs in Jesus' day and time who were, by the way, crucified and all of their followers by Rome uh, because they viewed them as insurrectionists. And, or he's, he's Lord. He's telling the truth. So you have to make a decision. Everybody has to make a decision. I can tell people all kinds of things. I can show you the evidences. We can go through Scripture. But push comes to shove. You have to make a decision. It's kind of like going to the doctor, and he finding a lump in your body, and he says to you during your examination, you know, he finds this lump. You've got one of three things you can do. You can either trust him completely and proceed with whatever treatment he recommends, or you can mistrust your doctor completely and accuse him of either being incompetent or just give you an outright lie, or you can react with a mixture of faith and doubt. You know, you want to believe your doctor, but you're not really fully convinced, and say you need to get a second opinion, and third opinion, fourth opinion. Evidence always demands a burden. Who are you gonna trust? You're gonna trust Jesus, who was God, coming to earth to take on the form of a human body, so that through his death, burial, and resurrection we do have an authentic pathway to the Father who created us? Or are you going to trust in some other religious pathway or no religion at all? The choice is up to you. As Jesus said, I will never kick down the door of your heart, but here's the evidence you've got to decide. And I've heard many people say, well, I have no need for God or there must be a catch to this it can't be that easy there's just too much to give up or you know I'll do it later you know when it's a more convenient time it's kind of like you know pulling gift cards out of your car that were in there for 5 years and find out they're expired right you know you just you know you're putting things off you have to make a decision and the bible says that today is the day of salvation you have today You may not have tomorrow. You may have tomorrow. You may have next week. You may not have next week. I don't know. My sister was 18 years old when she stepped into a car, or 20 years old when she stepped into a car thinking she would return home from Christmas shopping and never made it back. You never know the date that is stamped on your certificate of death, but God does. He's provided the pathway come into relationship, and it's found only through Jesus. So, Father, we thank you and praise you for giving us, um, Lord, really just evidence that is remarkable. We may find it a little boring at times, but it is remarkable about how you have so authenticated what you have come into this world to do. So when you made that statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes unto the Father except by me, then, Father, we can trust in the words of your Son, Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. And, Father, I pray that each of us who claim the name of Christ, who are followers of Jesus, that, Lord, we would choose to reorient our lives around his claims, that it would make a difference, a true difference, that we would be awakened to the blessings and the spiritual blessings that are are ours through Christ. Father, we just wouldn't talk about peace, that we would have the peace of Christ that surpasses all human understanding. We wouldn't just talk about wisdom. Father, we would rest on your wisdom. We wouldn't talk about love. God, we would authentically love as you love, Lord, that there would be such a transformation in our lives that we would have a faith that is worth following. And I pray that for every person here today. I pray for those who, Lord, are just kind of teetering on the line. Am I going to believe Jesus? I'm not going to believe Jesus. I'm going to believe him. I'm not going to believe him. I really don't want to give him my life. I really don't want to give that up or this up. and Whatever's holding them back, Father, I just ask your Holy Spirit, come do what he can do, only he can do. And it is to draw them to your love your grace, your kindness to your graciousness.